indeed reacts to product innovations of this type because um, uh, indeed are usually the ones driving product uh, in innovation because uh, you're one of the few companies out there that I think do have the capacity to change other people's roadmaps. Um, but uh, but then suddenly OpenAI comes out with uh, ChatGPT and everyone's like, oh my goodness, we need to react to this. So it's fascinating. We'll definitely talk about this as we go through, uh, Raj. Um, but anyway, um, let's, we're live, everybody. Uh, welcome, everybody, uh, to Founders Focus, episode 39. Uh, friends, this is, um, no question, one of my favorite things to do uh, in my work. Um, uh, nothing is more interesting to me than having conversations with people um, that are so passionate about the world of work that they have decided to go and do something about it. Uh, by building and leading technology businesses that are changing the way in which we do it. Um, so I hope you really enjoy this conversation I'm going to have uh, with one of the leaders of, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, one of the market shifting businesses in in the recruitment technology market space. I think when it's all said and done, when the history of recruitment tech is being written, uh, indeed will have its own chapter on it. It's been a remarkable business over the period of time. Um, and it remains one of those businesses where it makes a change and everyone else needs to be aware of it. So it is my singular honor to welcome uh, Raj Mukherjee, VP and GM of Indeed, to Founders Focus today. Uh, Raj, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, very much. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Like genuinely, the pleasure is all mine to get a chance to talk to you and to the audience. Fantastic stuff. Um, Raj, I need to ask you a question. You're in charge of one of the most important tech businesses in the, the world of work. Uh, what important things did you have to cancel in order to come onto the show today? Because I'm conscious of, you know, how much money am I costing indeed by having you sort of on the show? Uh, you actually, luckily, none. Um, the only person that might have been a little upset is my dog, because I usually take him out for a walk. And so he is probably somewhere in the house sulking. Because he's what is the name of your dog, Raj? Pluto. Pluto. I apologies to Pluto. Um, he's going to have to wait for his walk for uh, for another hour or so. Hopefully, he'll uh, he'll be patient enough whilst we have this chat. Um, Raj, um, wonderful to have you on the show. Um, you've been a technology leader for a long period of time, working for some of fact, the biggest technology brands out there: Microsoft, Google, Indeed. I mean, the the, the CV is uh, as 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 blue chip as it can be. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what are the similarities between businesses of this type of size and scale? And what would you say are the, the distinctions between, between them? How do these businesses differ from, if you like, your normal types of company out there that are trying to do things? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's a question that deserves a lot of reflection. So I'll, I'll start with uh, when you said what's similar between these large companies. One of the things that usually matters when your company goes this big is a sense of how to operate at scale and prioritize things effectively. Because you can do a lot of things when you become large, but you still have to be nimble enough to understand what customers and com the market is demanding and be able to effectively prioritize. That is, and if you don't do that at scale, you run the risk of becoming irrelevant to the world. So. Certainly, however you define it, whether you call it innovation, whether you call it good discipline in terms of using the dollars effectively to progress for your, for your customers, you have to do that well. So that's one. Second, employee well-being becomes a really, really important part of your thesis. Because you want, when you're operating at 10,000 plus employees, you, your employees are, are the people that are making things happen. Your cost, I mean, I'll give you a simple example. If your customer service employees are unhappy and the customers are calling in, that'll show in the way they will handle the call. And so you need to make sure your employees, employees are engaged, they're excited, they understand the mission, the vision, the strategy of the company, and they're oriented towards that. So that's the second thing that larger companies have to do, which in a smaller company, I'm not saying you don't have to do it, but it's a lot easier. In a larger company, when you scale that much, to have consistent customer touch points across thousands and hundreds of thousands of customer calls, very hard. That's just one example of what needs to happen on the employee side. The third thing I would say that's also similar and a problem that all large companies face is innovators dilemma. And this is really important. Uh, I know there's been so many books written about it and there are so many articles around it, but it's real. 
when you have a business that's generating revenue for you and you're going to disrupt that revenue stream it is going to hurt and you're going to make mistakes you're going to make many mistakes in the journey to rediscover your mojo so as to say to get the next s curve in your innovation because guess what the current s curve at some point is going to run out you're not going to see continuous growth from it its growth is going to plateau so to find the next s curve you actually have to disrupt yourself in some areas and understand that that will cause both internal and external backlash it's just going to happen and you have to minimize it and get your customers and your internal employees to see the value over time and make that transition and in that transition you will fail like that's the the third part is very 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 hard you know what this may be the singular challenge of companies that are market leaders isn't it um raj where you are yeah, so far ahead of of the, of the competition that the, the the competition is really yourself um because how do you then disrupt yourself and in fact the companies that we've mentioned the companies that you've worked for each of whom have been hugely dominant and you could describe episodes where all of them have suffered in innovation dilemma uh, the innovation innovators dilemma microsoft for instance did they really understand the web when it first came around did they right. did they grok the idea no they didn't um and and and, and they, they they lost out on the search to google um did they get mobile no they didn't and they lost out to apple and to to, to android at the time as well now you can see google also dominant for a long period of time but we mentioned them earlier today chatgpt and it was like quite incredible to see the product innovation suddenly bursting out of google um in response to um uh chatgpt's uh release um and we have to take it to indeed as well indeed have been well known for being able to disrupt itself over the period of time and in fact it's probably one of the most impressive features of the company um let's take us through this um so indeed started off pretty much as a as an aggregator of yeah. jobs didn't it so google came out and it was aggregating all content indeed followed up and said you know what we're going to aggregate certain type of content because yeah. it's very very specific we're going to just grab all the jobs put them into a searchable interface and then boom um people can go and just have a one stop shop um to to find to do job discovery um tell us a bit about that journey uh, um uh, as you as far as you know it um raj um uh, sort of from from that point where it began what what were the ways in which indeed innovated uh, against itself over the over the last couple of uh, years there so it's 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 a really interesting journey I, i was not part of it but i know the story and so i'll narrate the story um and uh, then connect it to what i have seen since i came here so highest level you think of the world in late 1990s or early 2000s you have a world where majority of jobs and i come from india where when you applied for a job you used to look at the newspaper and you would find a job advertisement you'd circle it and you'd reach out personally or call the person and say hey is the opening still there um and that's how the world worked now monster career builder all of these came as part of the web revolution what they did was they said hey you know we can have some of the jobs posted on our site so anybody coming in they can apply quote unquote to the job right so they you post a job on monster or you post a job on career builder and you find some of the jobs that exist in the world but there was no one who was thinking about the job seeker experience i don't want to go to 100 sites i don't want to look for jobs everywhere i am a finance person i want to find all the finance jobs in one place how do i do that and so when ronnie and paul they started this company their whole story was the job seeker experience needs to get way better we need to make it easier for job seekers to find all jobs in one place in fact the tagline was one search all jobs and yes it was a page from google's playbook but much more tailored towards the recruitment industry and in a sense enabling everyone all all of us to be able to find the opportunities that we want in our lives so from day one it was geared towards helping job seekers and enabling them to be successful on the platform and then that led to the second part of the innovation this was the business model innovation they said you know why do you have to pay per post when you pay per post it's a fixed dollar amount and you don't know what you get for it you're just paying someone it's like the advertisement on the newspaper you don't know how many people saw it 
same story. You don't know how, what's going on. You're just paying for it. It would be much better if we actually charged per click. When somebody actually views your job, then you pay for it. And so that's the second part of the revolution, which came with this cost per click advertisement. Now that that was challenging. A lot of people didn't understand it. The and uh, some of some of you who have been through that, you're like, okay, that was really difficult to understand. And so over time, when we started to move to small businesses, they didn't understand it. And so we introduced this concept, very simple concept of both free posting, which was revolutionary for the company. You talk about product-led growth for a company. Uh, free posting really changed the game. A lot of people said, okay, I'm, I'm going to try Indeed and try it for free and see what value it delivers for me. And at the same time, this concept of daily budget. And you can think of daily budget as a simple subscription that you can cancel if you don't like the results. And both of those two, circa 2015, really changed the trajectory of the company. And from a growth standpoint, I joined in 2016, so I saw some of the early trends of what happened after we made those changes. And then over the next seven years, we have seen that continued growth trajectory driven by these very fundamental business changes that happen. Free job posting and concept of daily budget. Yeah, the daily budget. Um, I, I remember at the time it caused consternation into the marketplace. Um, and it was just very difficult for um, the old job board mentality to go away. People were very used to understanding how to buy and pay for jobs. So suddenly um, this new concept came in and any kind of change is very disturbing for those folks. Um, but as you say, in the end, it's a much more efficient way to spend your money because you're, you're getting um, a, a clicks for what you're paying for rather than really just throwing a, a rod into the water and hoping for the best. Um, totally. We, and, yeah. And I, the only thing I'm going to just add to that, look, I mean, the, it's not that it is the most efficient way. The most efficient way, if you think about it, is you pay for the hire. Like that's complete skin in the game for both the employer and the, and the company that's providing the service. But we are far away from that. So that we can talk about future innovation, where are we going? But that's the most efficient way. Let's connect it to recent events, um, Raj, because we've kind of led ourselves to, to this point, but we have to talk also about the, the latest revenue sort of model change that indeed rolled out this year. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, like prior to making that decision, um, when you were debating the issue as to whether we we, we do want to experiment with a new way uh, of 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 uh, charging for the service, uh, tell us a little bit about how you made that decision and when did that emerge? Uh, like when it became obvious to you that you needed to make that call? Yeah, it's so it's always been obvious to us, and I think actually no, always is a strong term. It's not. Actually, it was not always obvious to us. I think over time, we have understood from our customers, talking to them at Nosium, one of the things that they have said is, hey, you know, we would really like to get qualified candidates from Indeed. Like candidates that definitely meet some of the critical elements of the job that we have posted. And it is, it's very challenging for them when they get applies that are not meeting some of their requirements. And that happens. Like, let's be very real about it. That does happen. And oftentimes, customers get really upset about it. So how do we solve that problem? And if you, I started by saying, hey, ultimately, the proof is if I give you a set of applications and you pick one of them or multiple of them and you say, I'm going to hire from that pool. Uh, but that, we're far away from that, as is most of the industry. Uh, so our notion was, can we get closer to the hire? Can we start to deliver value closer to the higher and in spirit deliver more value to customers so they will be willing to pay us more? Like this is, again, the idea is if we deliver more value and if we capture a portion of it, customers will be both happy and they'll pay us more. And so when we start, talked about this concept of pay per started apply, which has been rolled out to all customers in UK and in US, the idea was, hey, we charge per click today. But the click may not lead to an apply. We don't know if it does. So what if we take it one step further? What if we said a click is not what we charge for. We will charge for a started apply. When you click on a button that says, I'm going to apply for this company, that's when we charge. Now you might say, why don't you actually charge for the apply? The reality is, in many cases, we don't have that downstream data. We stop 
when you click on apply on the company page. But we are aggressively partnering with pretty much every well-known ATS in the world. Uh, and there's a, there's a whole slew of, and we do know that in the HR tech industry, there is going to be many, many players we have to integrate and collaborate with. And so our goal is, is make it easy to indeed apply. So for the job seeker perspective, they can apply on Indeed, yet the employer gets the applications on the ATS. So that's that work is progressing, but that's not 100%. So where we have that, we can certainly track that life. But the story is, can we move one step? And can we enable people to get more value? Instead of getting just a click, they're getting a started apply, which is likely to lead to an apply. And then over time, can we move closer and closer to hire and also keep improving the quality bar of the applies that we deliver? Yeah, that's very clear from a product perspective, um, Raj. Uh, it's very clear what that North Star is. Get closer to the person actually starting the job. And folks, if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. This is, in fact, the reason why, you know, the recruitment agency model has been so popular over the entire re uh, sort of over the entire period of time. The reason why is because we wanted to reduce the risk of, of engaging in recruitment services. Uh, uh, and we want to pay, we're happy to pay, but we want to reduce the risk and not uh, in, in basically spending money on stuff that doesn't translate into a hire for us. So it's 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 very interesting to hear that that is the, the guiding North Star for, for Indeed um, uh, and when you're making those decisions. Um, how difficult was it to make that decision, Raj? Was it was there internal debate in this? Was there people saying, no, you're crazy, don't do it? Or were there other people saying, hey, listen, don't do it, do it, but not now, not now? Um, how how was that debate, or was it pretty consensus driven? You know, hey, this is gonna happen. You know, it's all of that. And this goes back to the original comment I made about innovators' dilemma. Um, I I have had people who have said, if it ain't broke, don't why are you breaking it? And it's true. I, I, I have full empathy and understanding of where they're coming from. In many cases, people's livelihoods depend on us continuing the business as is. But the reality is, if you continue your business as is, there's someone else out there who's going to come and disrupt you. That's just reality. So over time, we have to figure out how to continuously innovate and improve value for our customers. Now, we have to do it with care. And we also have to acknowledge that we're not going to get it right all the time. Like it, it's... If it doesn't come with humility, what ends up happening is you will have hubris and you will think that you've got it right and eventually you will get completely de devastated. So my take is, yes, there, there are all of those debates. People were worried about what does it do for our internal revenue metrics? What does it do for the customer experience? A lot of people that indeed are very, very obsessed about ensuring job seekers don't get hurt in any of these processes. So there were questions on, okay, is it going to lead to better job seeker experience? Are we going to see more hires? Why are we doing it? So all of those questions kept, kept, kept coming up. But in the end, it was very clear. This is so aligned with our strategy, very simply connected to this concept of getting closer to the hire. And that's good for both job seekers and employers, particularly good for job seekers. Like if you put on a job seeker hat, their biggest challenge is, hey, I applied for a job and I never heard back. Or you sent me a job that I had no chance of getting. And those are problems we need to solve. We need to give them jobs that they are likely to get. And we also need to ensure that employers are responsive. Even if the response is, hey, you didn't get this job, they need to hear back from employers. So these are problems, foundational problems in our industry. I'm not, it's not just on Indeed. Foundation, and on the employer side, ghosting is a real problem. Like if, I'll share something deeply personal. Every single morning I wake up, you said, what routine did you disrupt? One of the routines is I read all our customer feedback that came from last night. So there's a streamlined email that gives me about 20 really egregiously bad things that we have done and about 10 good things because you can't just always look at the bad things. So it's a combination of those things that I look at and it's really, it grounds me on the truth. And every day I hear employers saying, somebody didn't show up for interviews. That's real too. So on the one hand, job seekers are not hearing back. On the other hand, employers are also not hearing. So we need, to, as a platform, we need to solve that problem. That's really interesting that to get a little bit of insight in your personal routine, Raj. Um, do you think that is a result of your product management discipline to do it that way? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would think, wow, that's like really impressive, but also kind of mas masochistic to, to kind of read the, the tough feedback coming at you. But then I'm thinking, you know what? Decent product people probably do that. You know, they embrace actually the negativity. So do you think 
that the uh, do you think that your experience really as a product manager or through the through the ranks helped you sort of, sort of develop this discipline? Uh, you know, I, I haven't met, and this will sound harsh. I haven't met a single good product manager who doesn't imbue themselves in customer feedback. Uh, if if data data can come from multiple places, this is qualitative data we talked about, but also being very good at understanding, for example, funnel conversion, right? So really going deep into understanding, okay, what happened in that funnel? And these are foundational principles of being a good product manager, data-driven product manager, which if you're not, uh, I don't know why you are in product management. If you don't understand, what the customer experience is, what customers are telling you on a day-to-day -day basis about their pain points and how that's manifesting itself in the product journey, then you shouldn't be a product manager. So again, didn't mean to sound harsh, but I think that's, I call it product management 101. What I'm doing is nothing fancy. I should be doing it. You could say that, hey Raj, now you are more senior. Why are you doing it? It's because I want to stay connected. If I get divorced from reality, I won't make good decisions. Yeah, very, very interesting. And to be honest with you, the, the, the combination between the, the relationship between hubris and humility is so, so tight. They're mirror images of each other, but they're actually a very thin line between the two. It's very easy to go from one to the other without even noticing. So um, that exposure to external feedback, I think, can help just surprise you and keep you kind of on your edge and also be a powerful motivator as well. So um, very, very interesting technique. Um Coming from product management, Raj, what would you say are the advantages of kind of leading a business from a product management route? And what, are the, what would you say are the, the things that are not necessarily advantageous? We see people do GM roles that are from sales sometimes. We see them sometimes from uh, operations, also from product. Where, how, how do you think product has helped you and where has it not helped you doing the GM side of it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important question. Like If you see... Uh, I did some analysis of, I don't know, about four or five years back. I was looking at people in the technology industry and a very loose analysis, not like a deep detailed analysis, but a high level analysis. And I saw that you would say that for the innovative companies, roughly about 70, 75% of their GMs come from product management or engineering background. Like that's, and then the rest, about 20, 25%, they come from operations or sales or other background, really. And there's a reason why that is happening or has happened. One of the core thesis of a technology company is you have to continuously innovate yourself. And product is at the center of that innovation. And the, the role of product management is to connect the dots across the entire company, understand different, balance every stakeholder's viewpoint, but most importantly, balance the external customer's viewpoint and then use that as a mechanism to understand the journey ahead. Like where should we move forward, why, and what's the priority of things that we should work on? That's why it becomes such an important role. And it's not a, product management has existed for a while, but in the technology industry, I would posit that it's been there for a couple of decades, really, and particularly in the software industry. It's been there for a couple of decades that this discipline has matured more. And at the heart of it is, once you have a great product manager, you know the value that they will drive. Like I've seen, like there's a product management is one of those disciplines where there's a real delta. I think in engineering also there exists some of that, but there's a real delta between a great product manager and someone who is average. Like a huge delta, not just a little bit of a delta. So arguably, if a company is doing its job well, they'll identify those great product managers and train them. And this goes to the second part of your question. There's a lot missing. When you go into a GM role, you are missing many skills. A GM is not product management. You, are, you have to think of the business very differently. Arguably, if you came from the sales side, you actually understand revenue way better than a product manager does. So I have had to learn what revenue is. I have to, I mean, arguably, Chris, my boss, holds me accountable for the revenue side as well. It's not just, hey, build great products, and, but they also have to ultimately lead to value creation for the company. So you start to learn those revenue drivers. You start to learn the go-to-market side way more because you lack that. As a product manager, you kind of understand it, but you don't really. You have to learn that and you have to build a muscle around that such that you become a holistic general manager. You also have to, the other thing that's really, really important, you have to become even better at strategy. 
Because you have to think short term, but you have to think about the longer term consequences of the decisions you need to make. And it, it, you have to take yourself out of the day to day and really think, okay, is this comp where is this company going? Where do I see this company going five years from now? Why is this decision so important for me to make now such that it actually bears fruit a year, two years from now? That balance, which yes, as a product manager, you make some, but you don't really make at the scale that I'm talking about when you become a general manager. So yeah. these are, it's real. You have to learn these things and you, you will make some mistakes as you learn those. Did anybody teach you these things, Raj? Or was it, hey, listen, you got to find your own way and you ended up having to, you know, get, get fill in the gaps yourself when you first inherited that role. Uh, how, how, do you, how do leaders at your level kind of, I guess, expand their skill set? Like, how do you, what is the process to, to that? You know, uh, there are multiple, I mean, things have become a bit easier these days. There are so many so many online ways to learn that didn't exist when I first started as a product manager. Like I'm going back all the way to like 2004. Uh, many of the things that exist today don't exist. Like they, they were not there. So you couldn't learn those things as a product manager. Now your question is around general management. Same story applies. Right? There weren't as many external sources, but there is one thing that has continued. And this is, this is so important. And this actually ties to something you wrote about uh, around AI. Um, this concept of the knowledge that doesn't exist in the online world, you building personal connections and you learning from the people who have created this journey before. There is no replacement for that. You need to find good mentors. Like the reality is you don't, I mean, if, if, if this is probably the one simple takeaway, you don't know everything about everything. You just don't know. And you have to go and learn from the people who have created the journey before. To find those people, they are eager to help you. This is the other part. I, I, I'll give you my own personal example. I'm eager to help uh, young and hungry, and young doesn't mean age, like in terms of experience, somebody who is eager to learn and they are showing signs of growth, I'm eager to help them. That applies to people who helped me in my life journey. And there were several of them who spent time with me. They were very kind with their time and they told me some of the things to avoid. But even if they tell you, you'll still make mistakes. This is the other part. You will make new mistakes and you have to then, so this goes to the second part. One of the most important skills in life that I have learned is resilience and grit. If you don't have those things foundationally, um, if you let, uh, it doesn't mean you are insensitive to customer's feedback, but if you let customer's feedback or your internal people's feedback always affect you, you're never going to be a leader. You have to learn to absorb that, learn from it and move on. Yeah, you have to divorce the personal side. Most of the time, I think the key to leadership is to understand that decisions you're making, um, you're not making on a personal capacity, but you're, you're making them as a caretaker of the organization you're responsible for. Um, and if you keep that in mind, then that can really orientate yourself to uh, the sort of decisions you need to make. Um, and, and in my opinion, sort of all decisions are hard, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, decisions are easy. Well, you know what? If the decision was easy, it was never a decision. <laughs> it was something, it's only when it's a 50-50. It's only when it's like, okay, we actually have incomplete information. We have two things that we're not sure on. We definitely have a trade-off. We just got to go for one or the other. That's where executive responsibility, ex executive skill set exists. Um, how do you make that call one to the other? So, um, so yeah, it's never going to be comfortable. And it's the, the ability to stay in the pocket, so to speak, in the discomfiture is, is, a, is a key part of being uh, successful in it. Um, let me throw in some a potential theory on AI on this, um, uh, uh, Raj, because we're interested in this at a personal level. Um, and obviously, people are thinking, you know what, AI is going to disrupt this function, it's going to disrupt that function, et cetera, et cetera. How about AI disrupting leadership, man? Um, I was thinking, you know what, if a CEO is literally there to calculate the risk, uh, risk and return on incomplete data saying A or B on this, surely if it's calculation engine, you know, a, a machine could do that better. Um, do you see AI performing that function maybe initially as some sort of like friendly a CEO assistant? But then someone's going to eventually say, you know what, the, the CEO, the human CEOs agree with the, the, the AI all the time anyway. We're just going to go with the, 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 the robot. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, 
this is this is sort of the and I'll I'll be vulnerable here. I'm still figuring out what AI means for all of us. For me personally, for the world around, for my daughter who is a 16 year old, uh, about to turn like she's turning 17 this week, and so it's all of these things uh, I'm figuring out myself. So I don't have all the answers. I, I don't want to presume that I know everything. Um, however, there are a few things that I'm slowly starting to form deep opinions on. My fundamental belief is AI will change every job, like every job that exists in the world. There'll be some jobs, and th that's not a small number, there'll be some jobs that will get destroyed. This is creative destruction that will happen. Those jobs will not exist in the future. There are many more jobs that will be created, actually. And we are talking about prompt engineering in the world of chatbots. That's a job that just got created, and it's actually paying really well, at least for the time being. And so that is a new job that just got created right now. Um, and every job is going to change. Your job is going to change. My job is going to change. And we will have, call it personal assistants, like you described. They will have personal assistants that are going to be significantly, not just a little bit, significantly more powerful than exist today. And they will be able to assimilate information in a way that very few machines have ever been able to do. So I can, I'll give you the example, this routine that I do in the morning. I'm envisioning in the not, not too distant future, I can tell the machine to aggregate all this feedback, give me the summary of the learnings from the customer feedback and read through that or point me to the section where somebody, some customer or some job seeker was feeling hurt by the experience that we delivered. So point me to that section of the video. So I don't have to listen to the whole video. I listen to that section and I immediately understand what exactly is going on. This is all happening. And so my productivity keeps on increasing. What this does ultimately is makes my decisions better informed. And do I believe that AI can make some decisions? Yes. Do I believe that AI will replace the human being in decision-making? No, because human decisions are all about greatness. Like, especially as you get more and more senior, it is not clear what the right decision is. Like nobody knows and you will, that's why I said you will make mistakes because you're making the best decision based on all the parameters that you have and you don't have all the parameters. Maybe your parameters will increase, but still you will make decisions that will impact people the wrong way or your customers the wrong way and you have to learn from it and you'll have to make better decisions over time. So it's judgment. And that's where the, this human judgment is not going away. And there's so much information that is not communicated. There's like a, a simple example. And this is what I'm realizing with Zoom. I'll give you the, we've all been living in the world of Zoom. Like, so COVID changed our lives. People started working from home. There are so many things that are communicated in person. Like when you meet someone face to face through their facial reactions, through their body gestures, and you're seeing a 2D version of me. You're not seeing a 3D version of me. You're not seeing all the aspects of me that actually communicate more than the words I'm saying. And so that also matters. That doesn't mean I'm not a believer like some of the CEOs uh, in the industry are coming out and saying, hey, remote work is dead. We don't want remote work. I'm, I don't believe in that. But I do believe that you do need to meet people occasionally in person to understand and build those personal relationships. How will AI do that? You can't do that. So while, and that's the part of me, like I, I, I don't believe in a dystopian future where every job is disappeared. We are just run by a singular machine. That's not, that is not what I believe in. But I do believe our productivity curve, which has been steadily going up, will see a disproportionate increase in, the, in this decade. That is going to happen. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. And you're so right, Raj. The, um, the, the information that's communicated... Uh, in, in an in-person scenario, a 90%, I would say, or more is not collected, um, uh, not documented, and never fed into a training model. Um, and that is where the intuition comes in. And yes, we kind of can go into this is now bias, this is now, you know, uh, a cognitive shortcuts, etc. Yes, that's true. But the, there's a reason why these shortcuts exist. We've evolved with them um, because it is inefficient to process all the information from scratch every single, every single event. Um, you have to kind of make those judgment calls. And I guess that's where maybe the, um, the, the, the humans out there that are listening to this uh, conversation uh, can have a little bit of confidence. You know, have a think about where your job involves judgment calls. 
um, you know, where it involves procedure, where it involves just, you know, mechanically doing things or whatever it might be, for sure, there's going to be uh, an injection, if you like, of AI that's going to really either make that go away or make you go super faster, probably both uh, in a sequence. Um, but where it will struggle is probably is where it's going to be when you have to make that decision based on the other human that you'll be affecting. Um, and, and that's not something that AI can potentially take over, I don't think. I don't think so either. And I think all jobs are going to require at some level. I mean, actually, I'll piggyback on an example that you had shared, which I very much liked, uh, the electrician and the plumber example, uh, where these, they, these are know-hows or skills for ages. I mean, these are skilled trades. Like oftentimes people immediately associate skilled trades with engineering or product management. But plum, I have tried to be an electrician myself. And I failed, failed at it, like really failed at it. I, I, I was not very good at it. So I had to call someone who could fix some of the problems. And uh, so, but the reality is these people have deep knowledge about how your house wiring is structured. And every house is wearing in some ways is different than other houses. And so they know where to, a master electrician knows where to go in and look for those challenges. Why is your lights flickering? I got like, I'm not joking, like this is, I got four electricians to come in and all of them were like, oh, I don't know. Like they tried blah, blah, blah. Then I got a master electrician. He came in and pinpointed the problem. And so how will AI do that? Novel configurations, Raj. Um, uh, everywhere where they, I think one of the things with AI is that it's always going to look for the most common or sort of uh, the most common instance of a solution in its training model. And therefore it'll always produce that as the answer. Uh, but it will, it's got to struggle when it encounters something that is novel. It's never occurred before. Uh, and of course, it's never occurred before because you get people like you and me thinking they're electricians and they're going to DIY some stuff. And yes. then the next guy who takes over the house is going to have a problem because it's configured yep. in this completely non-standard way that it kind of works, but it's not optimal because, you know, uh, amateurs basically uh, went ahead and tried to fix it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Another thing to look for, folks, if you're thinking about future-proofing your career, have a look at where there is a novel configuration in the process somewhere down the line. Coders will know this uh, all the time. This is why a lot of code is like, okay, you got to know how this works. Uh, it's not as it is on the manual because this is how it's been kind of jerry-rigged over time. Um, and the longer a, a code stays there without refactor, the more little bits get added to it uh, to the point where it becomes a little bit of a art and science as to how that thing works. Uh, <clears throat> Let's talk about how AI has, uh, or shall we say, the emergence of generative AI over the last 12 months. It's only been uh, coming up to 12 months now. How has it affected Indeed's product roadmap, if at all? Um, it, we can certainly see that it's impacted the likes of Google. It's impacted the likes of Microsoft rushing out with new things. Has it had a similar impact on Indeed, or is it, is it something that is a little bit more distant from the work that you're doing on the product side? No, it's not. Uh, and it's just absolutely not. And so let me take a step back and give you a brief sense of uh, Indeed and AI. Uh, any search engine, and this is not Indeed, any search engine that has been built over the last couple of decades, they have used machine learning in some form. They have had to, and for it to survive the world. And so Indeed as a search engine, I said, one search all jobs. From the very beginning, we had, we had capabilities, we had capabilities that were built in, like fundamentally built in, in our search engine that looked at the data and absorbed that data and started to help people understand how this search is much more personalized. And over the years, we have made search more and more personalized. So you name any kind of machine learning technique today, whether it's logistic regression or neural nets, all of those are getting used within Indeed. And we are making a big shift in the world of search and moving I would say complementing search. I, search will still exist, but we are complementing search with recommendations. And our belief is, and I, I know I was briefly observing some of the chat conversations as we were talking. And one of the things that people are talking about, which I very much like, this concept of quality candidates. Part of quality is to give people, job seekers, if you took an, took an empathetic approach towards it, reach out to the right job seekers for the job. Enable our recommendation technology to become so much better such that 
only the appropriate job seekers get those recommendations. So from an employer standpoint, it becomes it's sourcing, but it's sourcing on steroids, if you think about it that way, where effectively what you're saying is the right job seekers are going to get these recommendations, they're going to apply to the job, and so employers will see a significant increase in quality. And we have seen that over the years as we have started to shift more towards recommendations and using, and I'll give you some sense of scale, uh, we have 330 million visitors who come to Indeed globally, um, and we have 140 million pieces of data that we use every day to do this concept of matching. And these are, what does this data mean? It could be something as simple as someone's location preference. It could be the skills that the person has exhibited or this part of their resume. It could be things such as qualifications, like I'm a nurse, I have a nurse license in practice certification. So all of those things are part of the story that we have. We use this data to find the best matches for job seekers and send emails or notifications to them to saying, hey, you need to apply to this job because this is a great fit for you. You looked for some jobs, we know that based on your search experience, we are gonna use those search experiences as well as part of this data, but then we are gonna send you these recommendations. So as we move more and more towards recommendations, the world becomes simpler for the job seeker because they don't have to do a lot of work, they're getting the right jobs. And this is true for all of us in our personal life. If you think of when you go to Netflix, more often than not, you're watching a movie that's recommended to you. When you go out for dinner, you are going to a restaurant that's been recommended to you. So our personal life has changed with recommendation, but our business life, our job life, when you look for jobs, that's not really changed. And so we are trying to change that and make it way easier for the job seeker, but also way easier for the employer. And so both of these two things are complementing itself, and that's where AI comes in. Now, to answer the last part of your question very quickly, you now think about, okay, great, that's all old machine learning techniques. How will the world of generative AI change? Well, we're already starting to do that. We actually have a ChatGPT plugin that we have shared with the world, but we think fundamentally search will be different on the employer side and on the job seeker side. When I look for candidates, I will come in and I'll freeform tell you what I'm looking for. Or when I'm coming in, when I send an email to a candidate, that email, I don't need to start from scratch there should be something that is already written on based on who I am to reach out to the job seeker. So it reduces the mental overload. It, it may basically makes me much faster in reaching out to the right candidate. These are things that we are already in the works. We're doing it. All of these things will come out in a fairly short order. Yeah, brilliant. And we, we, all, we already had a pre-planned a segment where we were going to be talking about what was down the, the roadmap for Indeed customers going through. But some exciting things are going to happening, as you've already described, Raj. Uh, quick question. How do you uh, kind of ensure a delightful surprises um, for the job seeker and the also the employer? Um, so absolutely, uh, we can look at profile data as a, as, as a very strong signal as to what this person is looking for. We can observe their search behavior in platforms, understand, or their, 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 their user behavior in platforms, understand what exactly that they, they truly like. But sometimes a person doesn't exactly know what they like. Um, and we need to somehow give them a discovery where, you know what, this is actually not based on what it is happening from the past, but, you know, this is a delightful surprise. This is why we love the concierge service when we go and, you know, ask for the waiter for a recommendation of the bottle, because, you yes. know what, we want someone to surprise us. Uh, have you thought about this concept, Raj? Like how, uh, and if so, how would you actually go about engineering something like this? No, it's, it's and this is where actually generative AI comes back. Like oftentimes people don't know what they don't know. Like I am, for example, I've been working in a, as a retail clerk for a while. And this is real. A lot of retail clerks after working in retail industry for a while, they're like, can I join customer service? We see that. They type in customer service. And they are doing a lot of customer service in their retail clerk job. And how do you help them understand? This is like the skills-based hiring is going to be the next frontier. And it is... It's happening as we speak, because what, what it ends up doing is your skills are transferable. Things that you're learning in one particular area, like you're a cashier or your retail clerk, you've learned a few things about handling customers. And how can you translate that into a customer service job? How can we help you understand and the employer understand as well that these are the skills you bring in? So back when in the, back in the day, like uh, I would say early on, we were, we had an internal product that indeed where we were looking at 
we have the fortune of having so many resumes on our platform, hundreds of millions. And so we looked at different paths, career paths that people would take. And so we were trying to figure out what, so from a cashier job, did you actually move to customer service? Was, what was the probability of you moving there? What kind of skills did you acquire and how that journey uh, moved forward? I think that will be possible even more so with generative AI in the future. So some of the things, again, we don't know when we are going to launch. We are obviously in the thick of things and trying to figure things, these things out. Um, I don't have an exact timeline for you, but these are all made possible by the revolution that generative AI brings in. Because it's it, at the crux, generative AI just makes it a whole lot easier to generate text from existing text. And we have a lot of text. We have a lot of data that's been annotated over the years by internal and external feedback from customers and internal people. And so we can use that. And that's the secret sauce. And if you, if you sort of take away like, okay, how is Indeed going to stay relevant in the future? It's still data. Like this data aspect, it's not easy for someone to have the level of data that we have and then make judgment calls based on that and create the capabilities that are required to leverage generative AI in the way we can. Yeah. A quick question, final question on product. I, I, I need to ask this again, maybe a future future tense, but I think it will happen. Uh, for me, the natural uh, kind of uh, evolution of the chat interface is actually to chat to it with voice. Um, so, you know, we get away from typing. We just say, hey, um, I'm looking for a job in Jacksonville uh, that does this, this, and this. Can you just surface me up something based on what you know? Uh, but I'm talking to it. Um, have you got any teams working on this, Raj? Is this, is this too far in the distance, would you say, for it to be commercially relevant? Uh, where are you positioning voice in terms of the roadmap for Indeed? I don't imagine it's too far, but I do imagine it being a step ahead in terms of the things that we need to do. I think the first step, and this is where humans still interact with text a lot, and text is relatively easier for us to input and expect. Voice, the technology to understand someone's voice, like I'll give you a simple example. I, I still have an accent uh, that is different than the American accent. And oftentimes the machine will not understand. Like my frustration with uh, the Google bot that listens to me, that is still listening to me all the time, uh, is it doesn't really understand me. When I say, hey, Google, tell me something, it doesn't really address my question. That is going to still stay. The ability to comprehend someone's accent translate that into something meaningful, we are not quite there in that technology. It's getting better. Every single hour of the day, it's getting better. And it will continue to get better. My brother in India, he uses Alexa every time he goes to sleep. And that Alexa turned the light off. So these are things that are happening, but it's still not quite there in terms of technology. We will leverage it, but I think it's a second order. The first order is, can we make natural language search? Like if you come to Indeed, Indeed is still what and why in terms of search. But can we make it much more free form? Can we make, make it much more chatbot type experience? Same thing on the employer side. When I come in and when I look for candidates, can I make it much more free form? Can I understand your intent much better? And that is going to be, I think, the first order changes that will come in. How are you going to do that, Raj? Are you going to do it like simultaneously, give people an option? Because people have been habituated in terms of knowing how to operate indeed and to extract value from it. Sometimes when you change the way in which search works, everyone freaks out. Like we've had that in, in LinkedIn. People are freaking out on LinkedIn because they've changed things. People are freaking out on Google because they've changed things as well. Are you going to just switch on and off or is it going to be a case, you know what, we'll give you a toggle. You can switch between different search modes or maybe you're going to put two different sort of panels in front of them. What are your thoughts on, on, on that? Uh, many things. The, uh, the team teams that are closest to it, they're working on many, many iterations of this. They're, I think right before you were talking about something, we really liked what you said. Uh, you said, hey, chat GPT is, yes, it's a backend innovation, but it's also such a great user experience and innovation. Uh, I, I do feel the next generation of search and recommendations, a lot of it depends on the user experience and guiding people to understand why it's good for them. Because there is a natural apprehension. Like when we say, hey, do this for me, but then we are worried that it's taking away control from me. Like, and that's natural, that's human. So how do we do it in a very natural setting where let's say I'm gonna make this up, this very simple use case. I'm gonna create a job description for you. Now, people have been creating job descriptions for decades, for ever since human history existed. Uh, some of the job descriptions on Indeed though are not great. Like they are a couple of lines, 
they don't really convey to the job seeker what's what they are looking for and then randomly people apply and the job seeker job seeker is frustrated the employer is frustrated so we could interject we could make it a lot easier for people to write better job descriptions but we cannot take the control away we cannot just say hey here's the job description just take it so that that cannot happen either what about so, the sorry rush go ahead no i was just going to finish the thought there so how can you be a companion to the employer and enable them to understand that hey here's a good job description that will work better for job seekers to understand your intent and then they have a choice to edit it they can make it better if they want they can put in their own color and ultimately that goes live and i think i think we can i mean i very quickly share my personal story one at one time my wife was looking for a job change this was way back when and she came to me and she said i don't think i can get any of these jobs and she showed me a few jobs there were pages and pages of description written with so many things that were required and this there's a truth out there where women don't apply to jobs if they don't qualify for all of the things and men do like this is a i know it's a gender biased thing but that that ends up happening so our job descriptions are also very biased that way so how can we debias job this job descriptions in the process as well so it's much more equitable so all of these things we have to, we have to think about because ultimately ai has to make the world more fair that is important as well as we use these very powerful technologies yeah and it's very interesting we don't have the time to quite go into another philosophical tangent on what the world looks like when it becomes pretty because i think it, one of the one of the things that features of generative is that it will have a standardizing effect in terms of how we're using language um and artifacts like job descriptions resumes and so on they'll probably end up gravitating to what is most effective which is a certain way to architect this thing uh, and yep. information architecture will be the same the risk may be okay are we then kind of when say misrepresenting but are we then kind of removing the personality out of the resume or removing it from the the branding out of the uh, the company uh, i think you can make the argument that it is um but again we don't have the time to talk about it right now so we're running really short on time uh, it's been such a great conversation raj let's talk uh, a little bit about sort of leadership lessons raj you've been running uh, as gm uh, of indeed you've led big teams uh, in different organizations um what sort of leadership lessons would you be able to give to someone who's on their way up and wanting to uh, to take on a similar type of size and scale uh, are, are there any lessons that you've learned that you you would be able to impart to that person yeah i, I would leave i'll give three very quickly and there are many others but i'll give three that are i think pertinent here one stay close to your customers i know i start i talked about this before but it's really important stay close to your customers learn their pain points listen to them but don't build exactly what they're asking for because they also don't know what they need uh, but really pay close attention to their pain points understand what things they are struggling with and solve those problems and use data with judgment because it's not always just data use data with judgment effectively so that's the first thing like really stay close to your customers make better decisions understand with data second always always focus on growth mindset grow your people focus on everybody's got gaps i have got gaps you have got gaps everybody's got gaps understand the strengths of those people leverage those strengths and give them opportunities to grow and help them understand where their gaps are and continuously invigorate them because that's people stay with people when they have a chance to grow in their career not just because they're getting paid so find that inner motivation and grow them so that's the second lesson the third lesson is understand that you make mistakes and be open about it be vulnerable as a leader be open and say hey i made this mistake here's what i learned from it here's what i'm going to do different in the future if if you let your hubris get in the way and think that you're always going to get it right you are going to be less thought of by your organization it's just not going to happen people are going to see through it they will know you have made the mistake and they will know you're trying to hide it so these are three life lessons i'll share um and then the fourth one that i actually shared in between that actually that's the bonus one i would say build your resilience you are going to get criticism from all corners that's absolutely going to happen people are going yes take the criticism not saying ignore it but build the resilience to know that 
you need to be the leader that people are asking you to be. Leadership is not easy. If it was easy, everybody could do that at the scale that we are talking about. It's not easy. Uh, you have been anointed as a leader. Do your job. Have that resilience. Do you know what? As you're describing these personal leadership lessons, Raj, I couldn't help but think that they're, they're actually reasonably good kind of uh, analogies to indeed itself as a presence on the landscape. Um, because resilience is certainly something that indeed is able to uh, exhibit and, and manifest. It's very de it's demonstrated over, over several decades where we've seen the growth and decline of various competitors, but indeed is always there. Um, can, can we talk about something like uh, organizational resilience? Is that a, is that a, a, a topic that's worth talking about? Like how, how does an organization do that? Uh, continue over decades, continue kind of with all of these huge changes that are happening from a, from a, a technology perspective and also from a behavioral perspective with regards to the customer base. Uh, how does an organization keep at the top and not kind of uh, uh, be overwhelmed by any of this? Is there any way, is there anything that you've seen in, in terms of how Indeed works that you could describe as a cultural resilience? Yeah, I, I go back to the values of the company. It's really important. You actually asked me the question at the very beginning. I don't think I fully answered it. Uh, one of the things that makes a company unique is its values and its mission. And our mission, very simply, is we help people get jobs. We've always been obsessed about job seekers. How do we get more and more people get hired? And are we doing a better job than we were doing a few years back? I'll share a statistic that actually should encourage all our listeners as well. Uh, about three years back, Indeed used to make 10 hires per minute. Today, we make 23 hires per minute. Some of it is better data that we have collected, but also a lot of product improvements that we are making. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, there are challenges in the way we deliver qualified candidates. All of those exist. But are we getting on the macro level better in terms of delivering hires to our customers? Yes, that's happening. So that's the measure. Like if you, we help people get jobs, are you continuously improving that? Are you moving in that direction? And that's the foundation of our company. Now, in terms of the values that it starts with, we are always job seeker first. Are we doing it right by job seekers? Are we helping more and more job seekers? The second is pay for performance. Because we don't want, we really don't want to make money when our employers are unsuccessful. Now you would say, hey, Raj, you delivered so many unqualified applications. That pains me. I want to get to the point where we only are able to charge for qualified applications. Yes, that's the direction we want to move to. It takes time to get there, but we want to move in that direction. Third is using data to make better decisions. Fourth is innovation. And final one, this is something we didn't talk about. It's an hour by itself, is diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Our CEO has led from the front, Chris Himes. He just leads from the front on this. And we are a globally inclusive company. Everyone from everywhere in the world feels included and they belong in the company in a way that I have seen very few other companies do. We really mean it when we say, yes, we represent the world. We are a global company. Everybody needs to be themselves in our organization and need to feel the sense of belonging here. And there's a lot that we are doing on that front. Um, Lafont Davis, who is our head of that area, um, he, she is fantastic and she's leading from the front there. Yeah, and we've seen lots of evidence of this from Indeed, uh, you know, solid transparency, for instance, uh, internally, um, uh, lots of sort of initiatives going through. I've had the pleasure of interacting with a lot of the managers, certainly in the UK, sort of uh, an island offices, um, always been hugely impressed by, uh, you know, their passion and commitment to something wider uh, than just the, the profit-making uh, gambit. Um, Raj, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I, I feel we could continue having this conversation for another hour or two at, at the very least. Uh, but I know Pluto needs to be walked. Um, in fact, I heard Pluto barking away at, at moments during the conversation. So uh, thank you for the patience of Pluto. Um, uh, let me let you go, Raj. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. Great to have your insights on uh, uh, how you lead this organization um, and good luck with all of the changes that are still to come and all of the innovations that uh, customers uh, can enjoy over the next uh, year and, and beyond. Uh, Raj Mukherjee, thank you so much for joining us on Founders Focus. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks to you, Hong. Really appreciate it. That was Raj Mukherjee, everybody. Um, wasn't he a wonderful chap? Um, I think he was... Uh, 
uh, a really great, I'll tell you what, whenever you speak to people at the top of the industry, you'll find that they're the most humble and most uh, uh, genuine people, I find. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. I'd totally be up for a part two if it's available. Um, but do uh, uh, sort of uh, make sure you follow this channel. We're going to do Founders Focus uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we're going to speak to the leaders um, of recruitment technology companies that are changing the way in which we work uh, today. Um, that was Raj Mukherjee, everybody, uh, Founders Focus. Uh, he is the VP and GM of Indeed, the company you all know, love, and still use. Uh, okay, that's about it, everybody. And I uh, hope you've had a good time. I'll see you. I'll see you next time.